It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 30th, 2015. Yes, we've launched our new website. Details forthwith. We'll let the music stop playing. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers. Self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose curriculum we need to be studying instead of God's Word in our small group Bible studies. Strange how that happens. And uh, what we find here is that over and again, these people are not rightly handling God's word. They're twisting it, manipulating it, being innovative, inventing new doctrines, and, uh, well, just generally making stuff up uh, for shameful gain. That's kind of the idea. And uh, what we really want to do is help, well, protect you from these innovators, these false teachers. Some of them are heretics. Some of them are just really deceived. Others are delusional. And equip you to know what God's Word really says, to help you understand really what the central message of uh, of the Bible is. Salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's all about what Christ has done for you. And to, to by, by doing so, you'll be able to protect yourself, learn how to uh, warn and protect others that you, you love and care for, as well as maybe people that, uh, you know, that are perfect strangers, yet uh, you have a love for them because of Christ. Now... As I said, today's kind of a big day for us. It's a huge day for us. We, you know, we've, we've, what do we do? We stepped out in audacious faith. No, we didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't even decree and declare anything either. No, what we, what we've been, uh, what we've done is we've tried to up our game a little bit. We really want to be able to serve the body of Christ in even better ways. And uh, and so our websites were getting really long in the tooth. And uh, and so we've totally revamped everything. And uh, and you know, you'll find that, you know, when you go to our website, you can go to fightingforthefaith.com, it takes you to kind of our new central hub website, which is piratechristian.com. So, you know, fightingforthefaith.com still works. I'll still use that here on the on the radio program, but it's going to take you to a website where you'll find not only Pirate Christian Radio, the archives of Fighting for the Faith, you'll find uh, new uh, things that we're going to be making available to people, including my captain's log. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Being the, the, the captain of Pirate Christian Radio has its privileges. I get to have my own captain's log. But, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of resources that uh, that are there and we will be adding to. And so would love for you to, you know, take a moment and go and take a look at the new website. And uh, as with the launch of the new website, one of the things I've been making clear is that, uh, well, we've, well, we've increased our expenses. And uh, what we're going to be doing 
between now and the time we reach the goal <laughs> is to basically convince uh, those of you who are listening to Fighting for the Faith. And by the way, I do know how many tens of thousands of people listen to Fighting for the Faith, and I know how many people support us. And so what, we're, what we really would like you to do is take a look at the website and ask you to partner with us. And in, in, in the idea is, is that, I, you know, listen, when you partner with us, I cannot promise that you'll be cured of cancer. No, I can't, can't, can't promise that. I will not be sending you a pirate hanky that I've blown my nose in that will uh, somehow make it so that you can have a financial miracle in your life. No, not that either. But what I can promise is this, is that if you partner with us, we will continue to do what we have been doing and more. We will continue to preach the gospel, expose false teachers. We will continue to make our resources available for free to people. You'll notice that there is no paywall at uh, at piratechristian.com or fightingforthefaith.com to listen to the archives of Fighting for the Faith. And this is imperative. Uh, the reason why is because there are people out there and, and many of you know this because you, know, you, you say, I ran across Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio because I knew something was wrong with this teacher or that book or whatever, and I couldn't figure out what it is, and that's how I came across your website. So the idea is, is that if you partner with us, I promise we're going to continue to do what we're doing and more, but it's for real. We have literally increased our expenses like you would not believe, but we need to increase them more in order to kind of you know to get to the next phase of what we would like to do with the website uh you know we need to be able to well add some more people and some of them need to be paid and so uh we've set as a goal we need 600 more crew members 600 and you're thinking is that huge well compared to the size of our audience 600 is actually nothing and so the idea here is if you have never partnered with uh, fighting for the faith and pirate christian radio this is the time to do it. If you have benefited, if you if your eyes have been opened, you've been comforted by the gospel, you become uh, more knowledgeable as to what the scriptures teach and are, are really appreciating the message and the work that we are doing with Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. We truly do need you to partner with us. And the way you do it, and here here's the idea, go to piratechristian.com. That's right, piratechristian.com. And uh, you can see the links. It's on the. It's right there on the homepage. It says "Join Our Crew Today," and when you click on it, it takes you to our "Join Our Crew" page. Now we've completely revamped this. And uh, yeah, it used to be you know you join our crew. There was just basically one crew. You know, you were a member of our crew. Well, now we have ranks, and so um, we have ranks. The the lowest rank member of our crew. Well, those are the powder monkeys. And uh, the, so the lowest rank uh, member of our crew, that cuts, that starts at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. And you're thinking, yeah, well, I can't afford the... I understand that. That's why we kind of put this together. But the idea here is, is that in order for us to be able to continue you know, with the website that we have and to start to add the things that we want to bring on kind of in phase two of our website, which is include, you know, it's going to include um, video. It's also going to include news. We actually want to do pirate Christian news in order to really take this to the, you know, the, the full potential that we've, we really hope for this website. We need 600 or the equivalent of 600 new powder monkeys. So I, 
<laughs> it's weird to land. So are you a are you a candidate to be a powder monkey at uh, <laughs> fighting for the faith? I yes, I know that's kind of a <laughs> it's not exactly the sexiest term out there. It's like yeah, you know, and I and the, so the idea is this. You know, the perk is the new website. The perk is what we want to add to it. And so if you have never partnered with us before and you have not joined our crew, we've made it possible for you to join our crew. We need the equivalent, again, of 600 new powder monkeys. We have three new powder monkeys as of the time I'm reviewing, you know, I'm recording our episode today. So, you know, we're, 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 we only need now 597 new powder monkeys. So, uh, visit, again, piratechristian.com or fightingforthefaith.com. It'll take you to the same place. And uh, and right now, just by way of, you know, kind of let you know, uh, the way you listen to the Fighting for the Faith archives is you go to the podcast section on uh, up above in the, and, and you click on Fighting for the Faith, and you can see the Fighting for the Faith, uh, you know, archives there. And right now, there's kind of two ways in which you can view our archives. You'll notice that we're not totally done building the site out. So, uh, you know, there's still some things we're working on behind the scenes. So the way you you view and find the past episodes of Fighting for the Faith on the right-hand side, there is a little calendar widget. And, you know, you can, as you hover over a date, it'll tell you the name of the episode. And you can literally, you know, scroll back uh, into our archives and uh, take a look at uh, the different episodes from the different months that we've done or you can go to uh, uh, you can go to podcast and click on buried treasure, and there you'll see that we have all of our, our archives uh, with keywords associated with with teacher or doctrines or things like that. There's different ways in which we've kind of you know, organized it to, you know, to try to make it uh, possible for you to find things. And of course, with the new website, we have a killer search engine you know it, on the website. So if you can't remember something, but you remember somebody was on there or whatever, you can search for it, and the search actually works now. I mean, when, uh, back when we were on TypePad, our search engine wasn't working all that great. So, again, take some time. Go to piratechristian.com or fightingforthefaith.com. It'll take you you know, to both to the same place. And check out our new website, and you'll see the potential for what it is that we're going to be doing, you know, what we have and what we'll be doing in the future and please, if you have never partnered with us, this is truly the time to do so. And again, we need 600 new powder monkeys. And you know, based upon the size of our audience, that is not a large percentage of the people listening to Fighting for the Faith. And when you partner with us, you are partnering with us to spread the gospel, to spread the truth, and to help you know, protect people and to warn people regarding you know false doctrine as well as give them true sound doctrine. So... Thank you for all of you who are already members of our crew and support Fighting for the Faith financially. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without your help. And so, you know, again, big auspicious day for us today. Big, 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 big day. All right, before we get to what we're going to do today, real quick, I want to help out the folks over at the Church Watch Central blog. Uh, The culprit in the pulpit game continues on, and there are new... Clues, new clues for the culprit in the pulpit. See if you can figure out who this is. And uh, the ones who are able to figure out who it is will receive, well, <laughs> Pirate Christian Radio merchandise. Yeah, we, we've donated it to them. So let's let's go through the clues real quick here. They are a false prophet, whoever this person is. They say they have written a number of books. This person shares their personal visions and dreams in writing and in the pulpit. 
This person plagiarizes other people from the Elijah list and around the internet. And oh yeah, this person most certainly does do that. And then there, if you clue number five, there's an elimination round. This person has toured many countries and spoken at many churches. This person often preaches the prosperity gospel. Um, <clears throat> this person, <clears throat> you have to say it this way, they see dead people. This person claims to see dead people. This person is over 35 years old. This person has been racist in the pulpit, saying all kinds of awkward things you know, racially. Uh, this person is still married. This person claims to carry different anointings. This person... Uh, preach the word of faith gospel. They've been reviewed on fighting for the faith. Oh, yeah, this person most certainly has been reviewed on fighting for the faith. And then there's another elimination round. You know, people who it is not, who limit the, uh, the, the which is limiting the number of people who could potentially be. Uh, this person promotes their own heavenly tourism experiences. This person promotes women to be in pastoral positions. Uh, since starting Guess Who, Elijah List Challenge, this person is still plagiarizing people's works. <laughs> yeah, even though they've been caught plagiarizing, they still continue to plagiarize. Uh, this person has reinvented their past on numerous occasions. Uh-huh, absolutely true. And after researching everyone on the Elijah List Challenge, challenge all the people, uh, at all the Elijah List contestants should know who the culprit in the pulpit is. That's kind of an obscure uh, clue. Clue 21, This uh, the uh, <clears throat> folks over at Church Watch Central have had discourse with the culprit in the pulpit, and they seem to have been removing posts from their Facebook account. <laughs> now, clue 22, uh, the, the folks over there at Church Watch Central will be announcing who the culprit in the pulpit is while they are speaking at a conference coming up very shortly. Uh, this, uh, the, in fact, the folks over at Church Watch Central say they will be alerting the culprit in the pulpit that they are the culprit in the pulpit, so that they can repent and turn themselves in. <laughs> Hopefully, be forgiven. If they do not reply to our message, we will take that as a sign that they're going ahead with their conference speaking engagement. And before announcing the culprit in the pulpit, we will be giving the name of the culprit in the pulpit to prominent people on the Elijah list to call that person out to see if these uh, prominent people really consider themselves to be genuine prophets of God. Anyways, and a recent website has gone up <clears throat> exposing the uh, false teaching and sins, if you would, of the uh, culprit, culprit in the pulpit. Now, if you want to uh, you know, see if you can figure out who this is, you can find this again at churchwatchcentral.com. Churchwatchcentral.com. And, I mean, they're getting really close to announcing who the culprit in the pulpit is. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Uh, looking at our time here. Uh, for the rest of uh, what remains of hour number one, I'm going to try to get to some emails. And then in hour number two, well, in honor of Reformation Day, which is tomorrow, we're going to be listening to three good Reformation Day sermons. Uh, one from Pastor Mark Bestial from Calvary Lutheran Elgin, Illinois. Uh, one from uh, Brent Kuhlman, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska. And then, uh, you know, batting cleanup will be Jeremy Rohde from Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. So that will make up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, I'm telling you, they really do enhance your listener experience. And uh, well, let's get to it. Let's do some email. Now, just a reminder, okay, that here's kind of the rules regarding email here at Fighting for the Faith. 
If you email me, please tell me your name and where you are on the planet. We have listeners literally from around the world. And if you don't tell me where you're from, then uh, I actually have a, um, a, a website that I go to that randomly generates a, a city from around the world. And prior to coming on the air, if you haven't told me where you're from, well, I visit that website and then just start you know, assigning places to where you're from. So <laughs> you're thinking, I, you know, I'm not sure if he was answering my email or not because I don't live in Kathmandu. Well, the reason why... You're not sure is because you didn't tell me where you were from. So that's one of the rules here at Fighting for the Faith. But to start off with, we have an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. And Pastor Charmley writes and says, Dear Chris, I'm listening to your review of Kong He's Nine Reasons Why Jesus Was Not Poor. It's a train wreck. Yeah, it, it that really was a train wreck. Of course, a lot of it is textbook health and wealth proof text and silly claims he apparently forgets that the Magi would not necessarily be wealthy people. The three kings is a later tradition of men. Wise men are not necessarily rich men. I agree with you there. And uh, one claim that stood out, though, was his claim that because the King James says Jesus sent his disciples to buy meat, it means <laughs> that they were rich. Kong He here has fallen victim to the error of supposing that every word used in the King James it is used as it would be today. Well, it isn't. In 1611, meat was simply the generic term for food. What we would refer to as meat uh, would be called flesh, so that even in the 18th century, the hymn writer Josiah Condor could write in a hymn on the Lord's Supper, Bread of heaven on thee I feed, for thy flesh is meat indeed. Ever may my soul be fed with this true and living bread, meaning by it not the rather redundant statement that Jesus' flesh is well fleshed, but that it is our food. In the name of our blessed Savior, Christ Jesus, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Great email, Pastor Charmley. And next email comes to us from Gwen. And Gwen did not let us know where she's from, so she's from Tianjin, China. Yeah, I, I, yeah exotic location for sure. Gwen writes, he says, after, uh, actually, she writes, after uh, listening to many hours of your Lutheran-based commentary, I remain confused about what you teach is the way that a person becomes a Christian or gets converted. Under Lutheran theology, you say that decisional evangelism is not biblical and that nowhere in Scripture does anyone pray to accept Jesus into his heart. I never thought about that until I heard you say it. Does this mean that you do not believe that any form of a sinner's prayer should be used? If you are speaking to someone one-on-one uh, -on -one and you are leading that person to Christ, what exactly do you say? And if it's simply repent and believe, isn't that decisional? Uh, that, this is a great question, Gwen. Here's the idea. Is that uh, even you know when we look at uh, the, the book of Acts, chapter 2, Great day of Pentecost. Peter is out there preaching this sermon, and he just lays into these people. I mean, you are the ones who have crucified Christ, the Messiah, right? And at the end of it, it says that they were cut to the heart, and they said, Brothers, what shall we do? And so Peter says, Repent! Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So the idea here is, is that it is God who regenerates us, and he regenerates us through means. This is how the Lutherans talk. And another cross-reference would be like Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, and then cross-referencing that with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And you ask yourself, well, what's the gift of God? And the answer is, the grace is the gift of God. Even faith itself is a gift of God. God gives these things. 
And so if somebody is cut to the heart, then you tell them to repent and believe the gospel or to, you know, or to trust the gospel. And if that person can truly say, I believe that Christ has died for my sins, God has done his work in that person through the means of grace. So in the, in the, the way the Lutherans view things is means of grace are the word of God. Baptism is a means of grace, and uh, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, but the Lord's Supper is not to be given to non-Christians or those who are not baptized. Uh, the Lord's Supper is reserved only for Christians. So uh, so when we look at the means of grace, it's the preached word of God, specifically the gospel, the word of Christ, and the and, and baptism. So the idea here is, is that the person who truly prays, Lord, have mercy on me, the, the Lutheran would say, yeah, that person, even in praying that, has been brought to that point by the Holy Spirit himself. So God has regenerated them. God has quickened them. God is the one who has raised them from the dead to even you know trust in Christ. So the idea here is, is that we preach for repentance. We preach for faith. We preach for belief in Christ. And if the person says, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, I, that's just ridiculous. Well, then they remain you know unregenerate. And if they say, well, yes, I believe that, it's not because they've made the decision. It's because they have been given the gift of faith and they they are now believing because God has raised them from the dead. And so this kind of goes back to Ephesians 2. Uh, Let me read again from Ephesians chapter 2 and kind of point out the verbs that are in play there in the middle portion of it. Ephesians 2, uh, in fact, let me do this. Uh, I'll read starting at verse one and kind of note here, the progression here. And again, this, this lays out the monergism very clearly. And you Ephesians two, verse one, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So you'll notice here, dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath. And then we get to verse 4. But God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. There it is again, dead. He, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up together with him. And God seated us with him in the heavenly places. So the idea is is that regeneration is not our responsibility and it's not we can't even do it. God is the one who has to make us alive together with Christ. God is the one who has to seat us together with him in the heavenly places. God is the one who does these things and he does so through his means, the preached word and uh, and, and the washing of water with the word. That's the idea. So when a Lutheran, you know, says to an adult repent and believe the gospel it's not we're not saying so stretch out and make a decision in fact uh, many uh, many theologians you know basically look at a phrase like that repent and believe the gospel as a gospel imperative and here's the best thing about the gospel what the gospel demands the gospel always supplies it's not something that we muster in within ourselves otherwise it's not good news or and and if it's something we muster in ourselves then technically we're saved by our good works by making a decision instead a gospel the gospel imperative what the gospel demand the gospel supplies the gospel demands belief and faith the gospel supplies and gives us faith hence Romans 10:17 faith comes by hearing 
hearing by the word of Christ. So I hope, Gwen, that answers your question. Um, I would uh, point you to the work of uh, Jordan Cooper, uh, Justin Sinner in his podcast, um, you know, where he talks about Order Salutis, and as well as, uh, you know, the, he also publishes some great uh, yeah, Lutheran dogmatics texts and, you know, the theological works at a very inexpensive <laughs> cost that you can afford that if you want to go into these things further. Next email uh, comes to us from Myron in Irvine, California. And here's what uh, Myron says. He says, Chris, here's a very specific question that that builds on some of the principles you talk about on fighting for the faith. So maybe it will make the cut for your next mailbag episode. I hope so. I'm struggling to identify the antecedent of some of the first person plural pronouns in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, specifically if some of them are universal to all Christians. I just heard a sermon on 2 Corinthians 10 verses 2 through 5 without context and without even finishing the sentence that spans verses 5 and 6. The sermon applied the passage to all Christians, how we wage war, break down strongholds, etc. But as I read the whole chapter, it seems that the interpretation requires that the antecedent switch and then switch back and then span in, in, within the span of a few sentences, starting with what's very clear in verse 7 and following. We, however, it is referring to, is contrasted with you, the Corinthians, and therefore cannot be universal. We, including all Christians, since the salutation of the letter includes Paul and Timothy, uh, the pronouns apparently for, refer to them, and I think the same thing is true for verse 2. All right, well, let's take a look at the passage. And then what I'm going to do, uh, Myron, is recommend that you read a book by D.A. Carson on uh, this portion of Second Corinthians. Um, yeah, D.A. Carson is a very good New Testament scholar. And he has literally uh, written what I consider one of the better books uh, that uh, deals specifically with this portion of Second Corinthians worth uh, uh, reading and by the way, the name of that book is a model of Christian maturity, an exposition of Second Corinthians ten through thirteen, a model of Christian maturity by D. A. Carson. You can get it in Kindle, and it's just an excellent, excellent exegetical look at this portion of Second uh, Corinthians chapter ten. But let's take a look at this and understand this: is that Paul's epistles to the Corinthians, the reason why they're included uh, in our New Testament, is because there, there is a universal application to the, you know many of the things spoken there. So what applies to the church at Corinth applies to all Christians, and uh, and you get a sense of this also in what are called the Catholic epistles. The reason why they're included in the New Testament is because what is spoken to one church, you know, as far as doctrine and how we conduct ourselves as Christians, is applicable across you know to every Christian. So. You know, when Paul talks about, you know, in 1 Corinthians telling the, you know, the church there in Corinth that they need to, uh, you know, to rightly regulate the uh, the spiritual gifts and to not engage in chaotic, uh, chaotic use of the gifts where, you know, you know, that that not only applies to the church in Corinth, but it also applies to we Christians. Whereas, you know, when you look at, you know, something like Jeremiah chapter 29, especially verse 11, that is in the context of a specific letter written only to a particular group of people at a particular time. And so, so there's not a, a universal promise there, but it tells us how God cares for his people 
in both a general and a specific sense. And so in the, you know, the, in the specifics, you cannot, you cannot take a specific promise, then apply it to all of, of the believers, but you can take a look at it and see in general how God, ha- you know, how he treats people. So there's kind of a wide and narrow sense in which you look at things in these ways. So Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, I'll start in verse 1 to get our context, and we'll kind of pay attention to the pronouns. Uh, I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that uh, when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Though we walk, uh, though for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. By the way, this is the section now where Paul is addressing the error and the in the problem within the church at Corinth, where they are putting up with the so-called super-apostles, which they should never have been doing. So then Paul, verse uh, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so here Paul, I think the we he's referring to would be the apostles and maybe those with him, but at the same time, this is now something that we Christians also do and are, you know, to as we mature, do as well. Verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is in Christ also, uh, so also are we. Now this, starting in verse 7, again, the, you have to get the bigger context here. Paul is addressing the problem of the super apostles and their Basically, their claims against the apostolic authority and you know uh, and the apostle Paul, and you can't understand the section apart from that. So again, I'm going to refer you back to D. A. Carson's book. For if even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong and his uh, bodily presence is weak and his speeches of no conduct. So you kind of get the idea of what it is the super apostles were saying about the apostle Paul. And so we start with, with starting with verse 1 in chapter 10 is where Paul changed the subject and is now addressing the super apostles. And so I, I would, you know, if you, you know, what, when he says we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion, in some sense he's referring to he and the apostles, you know, the, the, the other apostles and even those over the church in Corinth, their spiritual fathers, so to speak. But this is kind of a, a part of a bigger argument to which I have to refer you to D.A. Carson for more of the specific details because that will give you the bigger context in which this is all appearing. And D.A. Carson does a fantastic job. Again, the name of his book, A Model of Christian Maturity, an exposition of 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, which I think will help you so that you can see that there is, in a sense, a, you know, a wide universal application of this that even applies to us Christians today, especially in light of today's super apostles. And it also had a, a, you know, a narrow sense in which he's using the we there that uh, doesn't take away from the universal application that is also part of what's going on in that text. But you have to look at it as a block, as a whole. 2 Corinthians 10 all the way through the end of, verse, of chapter 13, they all go together. And I know that's kind of a dissatisfying answer, but we'll, I'll put a link up to the, uh, the book uh, over at Amazon with today's program notes, which you can find at fightingforthefaith.com. 
All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll do a little bit more email and then we'll uh, get to some good sermons uh, for Reformation Day. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. That's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you could be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God 
and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never preaches the gospel to you as a Christian. Yeah, you still need to hear it, too. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you partner with us. That's right. You actually participate in the ministry of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio by financially support us, supporting us and making it, making it possible for us to do what we're doing. So here's how you do it. Visit FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you can see the Join Our Crew button. It's right there on the, on the landing page. Or when you look at the archives of Fighting for the Faith in the podcast section, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you don- donate, you're, you're basically deciding how much you would like to contribute. That's up to you. And when you join our crew, you, you, well, there's different levels now that you can join. And we, we're in the process now of looking for 600 new powder monkeys. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous. It's going to take me some time to get used to that. <laughs> are, will, are, will you step up and be a pirate Christian radio powder monkey? <laughs> It, just, it sounds wrong. <laughs> I'll get used to it. it. It's a lot better than having the way to say the word Twitter and then use the word tweet. I hate that word tweet. Anyway, it's but we're looking for 600 new powder monkeys so that we can continue to not only afford the, the new website that we put together, but really expand into the new things that we are hoping to uh, bring on board our new website. And, uh, you know, so you can there's different levels. There's a powder monkey. There's a. There's a gunner's mate, and then there's, uh, you know, you, you just take a look at there, and there's different uh, uh, amounts of money to go with the different ranks in our crew, and that's a great way to support us if you're not already supporting us. And like I have said before, let me thank you for your support. We truly, honestly cannot do 
what we are doing here without your support, and you truly do partner with us when you financially support us. All right, let's get back to email. Next email comes to us from Sheldon from Barbados in the West Indies, and no, I did not uh, generate that uh, that location. That's really where he's from. And, uh, and Sheldon writes just a, a very fascinating little question here. He says, uh, my question is, how did Adam and Eve know what death uh, looks like if, if, they're, uh, if, they were, they, if they were the first two people? Genesis 2, verse 17, Genesis 3, verse 3, God said to Adam, he will surely die. Is there any place in the Bible where God showed them what it is to be dead? Um, and uh, why is this a type and a shadow? Uh, so here, here's the idea. I'm not, I'm not going to go into the type and shadow of it. You can say you can look at the back of the book, and which clearly shows that our physical death is truly kind of the, the first death. Second death is is for only those who who end up in the lake of fire. That is truly the second death. But uh, there is nothing in the Genesis Genesis account prior to uh, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God by eating the fruit that they were not supposed to eat. There's nothing in there that, that even hints at the fact that God explained, and here's what death is. But we do get a quick little glimpse at God showing them what death is after they've sinned. Okay, so uh, we'll kind of pick up in the story, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, I'll start at verse 17. So God is now going to you know, give his final verdict regarding you know, to Adam. He says, to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So you have this, this idea here now that God is giving them a, a description now. Here, here's the wages of your sin. It's death. You are made of dust, and you will return to the dust. And then here comes the graphic example of God teaching them what death is. Then the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In order to do that, well, God had to kill some, you know, some of his animals in order to clothe them. And that, by the way, is the type and shadow uh, of God clothing them. That's the type and shadow because in Christ we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so we, we know that with the death of sacrificial animals, there is a sense in which they are covering over our sin. And so here we have a type and shadow of animal sacrifice of the Mosaic Covenant, and then that gives us a beeline straight to Christ. And the idea is that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and God is the one who has clothed us. We don't clothe ourselves. He is the one who has provided the sacrifice, and it's not garments of skins from animals, but he's clothing us with the very righteousness of Christ itself. And so you get a, you, you get a, a description in verse 19 of chapter 3 of what death is going to be. You, 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 were, you were taken from the dust. You're going to return to the dust. That gives you a picture of death. Oh, and here I'm going to actually clothe you guys now. Let's lose the fig leaves. And in order for that to happen, that little sheep over there is going to die, and that one over there is going to die. In order for you to be, for your nakedness to be clothed, and that's type and shadow of Christ, you know, covering our sin. Next email comes from Justin in Rapid City, South Dakota, um, and here's what it says. Uh, he says, 
I'll start at the beginning. Sorry for so many emails recently. I hope you aren't sick of me. No, actually, I'm not, Justin. So, yeah, and by the way, we had a couple email exchanges with Justin. He says, I had a quick question for you. I just talked to my friend about prophets and prophecies, and he recalled an experience where a woman argued for partial accuracies in post-Pentecost Christianity using this verse from Acts, Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 12. Um, This is from the NASB, the New American Standard, and the text is talking about the New Testament prophet Agabus. Here's what it says. As we were staying there for some time, uh, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So this woman that I was talking to, this is Justin again, she said that since the prophecy did not come true exactly how the prophet described that, uh, that that shows that prophets can be wrong about some things. Could you please explain how you would refute this argument? Uh, the answer to your question is, is I would refute this argument basically using some you know the biblical text. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to link to uh, a very good article that I have found that I it's, it, it talks about throwing uh, you know this guy under the agabus. Yeah, it's uh, from the Cripplegate website, throwing prophecy under the agabus, and it's written against. Uh, continuationists like Wayne Grudem, who basically argue, ah, oh, see, he didn't get all of his stuff right. So New Testament prophecy is fuzzy. It, you know, the details can be wrong. And uh, Nathan uh, Busenitz is the guy who wrote this article, and I'll link to it with today's uh, website. And I'm going to read portions of it because I think I think this guy does just a fantastically stellar job here. Uh, Number one, and here's what Nathan writes. It says, nothing in the text states that Agabus got his prophecy wrong. Neither Luke nor Paul nor anyone else in scripture criticizes the accuracy of Agabus's prediction or says that he erred. Thus, at best, the continuationist approach to Agabus is based on an argument from silence. This is absolutely true. They're just in basically saying, well, because in Luke's account later, you know, that's, you know, that the, the details weren't given exactly in, you know, one-to-one that somehow that proves that Agabus was fuzzy in his, uh, you know, his prophetic utterances. And no, that's not what's going on. Number two, Luke's description of what happened to Paul in Jerusalem implies that the Jews actually bound him in some way. This is a great argument from Nathan. Nathan writes, he says, later in Acts 21, Luke explains what happened to the apostle shortly after he arrived in Jerusalem, the Jews laid hands on him, uh, verse 27, seized him, verse 30, dragged him out of the temple, verse 30, sought to kill him, verse 31, and were beating him when the Roman soldiers finally arrived, verse 32. In Acts 26:21, Paul reiterates before Agrippa that the Jews seized him in the temple and tried to kill him. Since Paul did not willingly go with the Jewish mob, a point implied by the verbs like seized and dragged, they would have had to restrain him in some way as they forcibly removed him from the temple using whatever was immediately available to bind him. Luke did not need to repeat that detail since Agabus had already told us that Paul would be bound with something like a belt. Uh huh. So you, you, the idea here is that when you read the narrative, I mean, 
Do you really? I mean, in order for the continuations to be right about this, that Agaba somehow was fuzzy in his uh, prophecy and that he didn't actually get it all right. So New Testament prophecy doesn't require you to get all the details right, which is what they're trying to do is basically make room for inaccurate prophets. But the, the, the text itself implies that Paul had to be bound because otherwise Paul would basically at this point have to be, you know, let's just say willingly going along with his beating. Willingly going along with his being seized, real willingly being going along with his dragging, you know. I don't know any human being who was is going to willingly go along with being beaten, seized, dragged, and all this other stuff. In order for that to happen to him, they have to have bound him. And so, you know, the idea here is is that if you take a look at the kind of like the greater context. Uh, the greater context of the of the chapter gives us number one Agabus's prophecy, which tells us he's bound, and so Luke doesn't have to reiterate the fact that he was bound. Everything that happened to him implies that he was bound, and in the immediate context, the greater context there in uh, Luke twenty one, it says that he was going to be bound, and so all the things that happened to him, he has to have been bound first in order for that to happen. And Luke didn't need to repeat himself. I think you get the idea here. So what I'll do uh, yeah, for you, Justin, like I said, with this episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'll put some notes to go along with the episode, and I'll put a link to uh, Nathan Busenitz's great article, Throwing Prophecy Under the Agabus, where he just take, takes this idea of, you know, that somehow Agabus got it wrong and New Testament prophecy doesn't get the specifics right, and I just think takes it behind the, the proverbial woodshed and beats it to a pulp, and I think much to the glory of God. Yeah, so, yeah, you get the idea. All right, next email is from Matthew, and Matthew, well, he didn't tell me where he's from. So he's from Kolkata, India, and uh, Matthew writes, he says, um, uh, I'm Matthew, I'd very, I'm very surprised if you remember this, but we spoke on the phone back in February about the doctrine of sola scriptura after a brief email exchange. I do remember conversation. I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and input. I'm emailing you this evening because I wanted to ask you about Isaiah 53. I work for a campus ministry now called uh, Reformed University Fellowship, and I have the privilege of preaching on that chapter in November in front of a group of students on campus. It's the very first talk I've done something like this, so I thought I'd pursue every avenue as I prepare for this talk. Anyway, I'd like to go through the text sort of verse by verse. So I had a question about verse 1. To whom is the prophet's question addressed? The passage is beautiful and clear in light of Christ's work, but I simply don't really know what to do with that first verse. Additionally, what kind of resources would you recommend I consult in trying to present this passage to college students and should I bear uh, bear anything particularly in mind when addressing this demographic? Okay. There's a lot going on here. So you have an exegetical question, and then we got a demographic question, which, by the way, is kind of interesting. All right, so first of all, uh, in taking a look at Isaiah 53, I think it's important that we understand something about this text, and that is is that oftentimes uh, when a prophet is speaking, especially like Isaiah, when we get to Isaiah 53, verse 1, let me read it to you so we got the context. And he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Oftentimes when prophets talk like this, um, it's, it's kind of in a, in a way a projection. Let me read the note from the Lutheran Study Bible on this because I think they kind of get the idea of what – they capture what's going on with, the, with this way of speaking. And this is not unique to uh, this, this particular verse. This is oftentimes a way in which a prophet will speak. 
And so here's Isaiah 53, 1 from the, uh, from the Lutheran Study Bible. Over the centuries, the prophets announced the coming salvation, but here the character of God's work of salvation is revealed in shocking detail, continuing the theme of astonishment. The words are spoken as if announcing events which had already come to pass. So the idea here is that, yeah, he's, so Isaiah, and this is where it gets a little confusing. Isaiah here is announcing what Jesus has done as if it has already taken place, um, <laughs> which is a little confusing because he's saying, who is he talking to? Yeah, see, this is kind of a, a prophetic way of speaking, if you would. It's a prophetic future spoken of as if it's in the present. And so that's it's it's a way in which prophets speak, and they can do this uh, because they're speaking the word of the Lord. And while God is outside of the time-space continuum, the time-space continuum is a creation of God, and so he kind of supersedes it. So he can speak of the future as if it's a present. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a weird thing. that It's a weird feature of prophecy, especially Old Testament prophecy, as it relates to our salvation. So that's what's going on there, and I hope that answers your question. As far as resources, it's good to check a good study Bible or two. And see, these are these are resources you need to have in your library. If you're going to be a preacher, you need to have some good study Bibles. You need to have some uh, good commentaries. Uh, you know, Kale and Dalich, uh, that's just like a standard uh, Old Testament commentary that everybody needs to have. I have several commentaries that I refer to. Um, I particularly like to, you know, I look at modern commentaries. I look at commentaries that are outside of our immediate time. For instance, I like to look at Paul Kretzman's commentary, which, by the way, you can get online at kretzmanproject.com or .org. I think both of them will get you there. And I like to see, you know, so you look at a lay-level look at it. Kalen Dalich, that's a higher-level scholarly view. You need to know how to read Hebrew to uh, to really tap into what's going on with that uh, commentary. And then I also like to check with the Church Fathers, and the commentary series that I use for that is uh, is put out by, oh, who's the, uh, let me see here. Um, do, 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 yeah, it's the Institute of Classic Christian Studies uh, that put this uh, a series of commentaries out. So it's Old Testament, and uh, Mark Elliott is the one who did the Isaiah commentary on it. And it's a whole uh, series of commentaries where they take uh, a look at how the church fathers. So I, I basically I look at study Bibles. I look at older commentaries, some newer, um, and then you know, and then you know, like Nicot and things like that. Um, and then I also like to see how the old the the church fathers have done it, and that will give me at least a good frame of reference to how to put it together. And now, kind of coming back to your the last part of your question is that you're addressing college students, and is there anything I should bear in mind in particular when addressing this demographic? And this is, this kind of addresses one of the things that's one of the challenges of being a pastor, and the challenge is that when you're preaching, um, first and foremost, uh, you need to preach to those whom you are in care over, which requires you to know those people. And so um, I pastor a small congregation in, uh, in Minnesota, uh, in Oslo, uh, named Kongsvinger, and so we have anywhere between 25 and 30 people on a regular basis showing up on any given Sunday. And uh, although, um, if you were to listen to the sermons, you know, th- there's you, you can listen to it if you're if you don't actually physically attend Kongsvinger, but if you know the people at Kongsvinger, then you'll know that one of the things I do is I tailor the message 
specifically to the needs and struggles and maturity of the people at Kongsvinger, which requires me to know them and understand their maturity level. So I, I think rather than thinking of a demographic as college students, which I think is an arbitrary demographic, um, I don't like to think of people, okay, well, here's how I'm going to preach this to the, the 50 and older set or to the 40 and younger set or to the 20-something set. Yeah, no, I, I don't like that kind of arbitrary distinction. The question is, um, is where are they as, in, their, in their Christian growth? Are they infants in the faith? Are they, you know, teenagers in the faith? Are they, you know, newbies or somebody who's been in the Christian faith for a long time? I think it's better to think of them age demographic-wise as far as maturity as a Christian. And then what are they struggling with? And part of what they're going to be struggling with has to do with the current assaults on Christianity. Um, but it can also, but in, in knowing the thing, you know, in talking with them personally, one-on-one, you kind of know what they're struggling with. And so you want to preach in a way that's going to address them where they're at and where, where their needs are. And so rather than coming up with an arbitrary distinction, I'm preaching to college students, although you are preaching to college students, my challenge to you is how well do you know them and where they're at in their maturity as disciples of Jesus Christ and preach to them at on that level. I think that's a more effective way of looking at these things and uh, being effective in reaching them where they're at. Next email, and this will be our last email for the day, and um, this uh, comes to us from uh, Justin in Texas. I don't know where in Texas, but he's from Texas. He says, uh, hey, Chris, I love your show. I'm from Texas, and I'm in the Army. Uh, thank you for your service, by the way, Justin. And uh, your show has gotten me through the uh, uh, the long deployment. I was curious as to what your opinion would be on the issue of trichotomy, man being three parts as opposed to a dualistic view. Here's why I ask. I've stumbled across a few people that say it's heretical. Although there uh, were some early Christian fathers who seemed to hold to it, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, as one who has a desire for the whole truth and nothing but... I do not want to be deceived. I know that false doctrine breeds further misunderstanding, which in turn breeds more false doctrine. I have always viewed the issue as non-essential, assuming it doesn't matter if you're a dichotomist or a trichotomist in non-essentials liberty. I lean heavily towards trichotomy, but if this is a dangerous doctrine, I would like to be made aware of that so that I can cling to what the Bible teaches. And so he gives me some verses that he thinks can kind of teach a trichotomist view. And um, Justin, the way I'm going to answer your question is I'm going to do something I, I don't do very often. And that is, is I'm going to point you to, and I'll put a link up to it today, um, a blog post written by a uh, reformed professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, California. So this is Westminster East. And uh, it's Dr. R. Scott Clark. And he actually posts a long segment from Louis Burkhoff's uh, Systematic Theology on the issue between trichotomy and dichotomy. And the reason I'm linking to it is because uh, in, in the major dogmatic text that we use in the Lutheran Church, which is uh, Francis Pieper's uh, Christian Dogmatics, um, he doesn't actually have like a section that addresses this straight up, whereas Louis Burkhoff does. But I will say this, is that when you consult other Lutheran Dogmatics texts, the Lutherans historically fall on the dichotomous view and note, along with the reform, that trichotomy has as its origin really not scripture, 
but uh, platonic philosophy. And uh, Louis Burkhoff actually spells that out very well and, uh, and argues pr- pretty much the same way the Lutherans would, that when you see body, soul, and spirit distinction, that's not actually teaching trichotomy in the truest sense. So Lutherans, the way we view, the, how we understand Scripture is that, uh, you know, that, that we, are, we have a physical component and a spiritual component. There's not two of us, there's one of us. And just a simple way of talking about this is, is that sometimes, in talking about death, and this is the way the Lutherans would argue uh, the text, in talking about death, Scripture describes it as a separation of the spirit and the body, and the Scripture also describes death as the separation of the soul and the body. And so uh, we argue from those from the texts that look at death that that because soul and spirit are interchangeable, that the distinction between soul and spirit is not a hard distinction into a trichotomist uh, view of uh, of humanity. Instead, it is a, kind of a fuller way of describing the same thing is the way we argue. And I think Louis Burkhoff does a fine job of arguing this. And so I'll put a link up to it. And the, the name of the blog post by R. Scott Clark is called Reform Basics on Dichotomy and Trichotomy. And he literally copies and pastes from uh, Louis Burkhoff's uh, systematic theology where he uh, you know, makes it clear where trichotomy comes from, philosophy, not scripture, and then how he exegetically addresses these. And the reason I'm pointing you to that is because Burkhoff is going to give you a fuller explanation, and I, I don't even... I don't have any yeah buts when I read his uh, explanation. I think the Lutherans can say amen to what he said. And it's available for free on the Internet in depth, and I think that will help you. Yeah, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end... The week off, the day before Reformation Day with three good Lutheran sermons. Of course I would have Lutheran sermons right before Reformation Day. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, 
etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with three good Lutheran Reformation Day sermons. Just a quick historical note. It was we Lutherans who kicked off the whole Reformation. Just, just want to say that. Yeah, but we gotta do this right. Here we go. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons there's three of them they come to us first from calvary lutheran church elgin illinois pastor mark bestial presiding i do not have a name for his sermon by the way he will be preaching on the gospel of john chapter 8 verses 31 through 36 sermon number two from brent coolman from uh, trinity lutheran church murdoch nebraska he will also be preaching on the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. His sermon is entitled, Setting Sinners Free. And then the final sermon, Batting Cleanup. Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. And his sermon entitled, Extra Nos, as he exegetes Romans chapter 3, 19 through 28. I will read the texts as we get to them. Let me go ahead and back off on the music. Yeah, there we go. So the first two sermons are based on the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, which reads, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Jesus said, answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the text that forms the basis of the first and the second sermons that we will be listening to. Here is Pastor Mark Bestial's sermon on this text. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, whenever I read this text, 
this gospel reading of ours, I am struck by the Jews' sense of willful blindness. We have never been enslaved to anyone, they argue. How could they claim that? So plain is their self-deception that I've probably begun every sermon on this text by focusing on these words. It is mind-boggling how willing they are to forget that Abraham's descendants, their forefathers, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And in Babylon afterward. And now, in their present day, under the great Caesar of Rome, it leaves one scratching his head. How could they be so how could they so blatantly forget such reality? But I suppose if you live long enough with such self-deception immersed in it, you begin to forget reality. The same is true for us sinners. For so long now, we sinners have lived with various ill effects of the fall. We no longer see them as effects of the fall. But simply as a matter maybe of even how God created us. Just one example, maybe hundreds of years from now, if Christ is not yet returned, people will look on our generation and ask, how dim-witted was that society and generation to believe that they all came from apes? And yet in the last 50 to 100 years, it has become the prevailing thought in our supposedly enlightened land so that our society no longer remembers the truth of creation as anything more than a fabled story. It's not so much the ape-to-man evolution idea that's the root of the problem. It's simply symptomatic of the much bigger problem. Man believes himself no longer to be the creation of a creator, to be dependent upon a creator. Many of you who are in Sunday Bible study remember how just last week we heard that quote from Romans 1. That quote, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. And that self-deception can go for generations. Man thinking himself his own. A self-made man, we say, in honor of society's hard workers. Man thinking himself independent, thinking himself free, free to be his own, not a creation of anyone's, but a molder of self. But then we hear this verse in our first reading, that the messenger above, with an eternal gospel to proclaim, calls out, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea, and the springs of water. Notice the appeal of truth is an appeal to our Creator. Just as we confessed in the opening words of our first hymn, Thy strong word did cleave the darkness. At Thy bidding it was done. For created light we thank Thee as Thine ordered seasons run. Friends, if we are to deal in truth, we must confess the God who made heaven and earth. The God against whom Adam and Eve fell and enslaved themselves to sin. As Jesus says, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The eternal word of God that endures forever will not let us sinners forget 
who we are and from whence we came. We often think of the Reformation as the word endures forever so that everybody can know the gospel. That's true. But the word also endures forever that everyone might know who they are according to the law. We can try to rewrite truth and fall into a sense of denial about the quandary we're in and the troubles all about us on account of sin, just as the Jews tried to ignore the plain truth that defined them. But all they had to do was turn to the scriptural record and be reminded of their ancestors' slavery and their own. In the same way, we need only turn to the scriptural record to be reminded of our own slavery to sin, our utter need to be saved from ourselves, and the historical truth of our salvation. The book of Romans is a great place to turn for this, isn't it? In the third chapter, just two chapters after the reminder that the creature was not to exchange the truth of God for a lie, we are confronted with the plain and simple truth that we would like to ignore. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, we fall far short. We miss the mark completely of what the messenger of the eternal gospel declared. Fear God and give Him glory, a glory we sinners gave up in the brokenness of Eden, a glory we simply do not have. But if such glory is not ours, and if such glory belongs to the God who created the sea and the springs of water, then our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And joy upon joy, what help our Creator has promised us. Even when that Creator came to His fallen creation's aid in the garden and promised a Savior, saying to the foe, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Or as Paul continues in that third chapter of Romans, all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Our redemption is found in Christ Jesus. There is the reality. There is the real history of our entire world. Not just supposedly, quote-unquote, Christian history. It is history. All have been justified at the cross of Christ. His atonement has covered the sins of the whole world, and His blood has purchased redemption for all mankind. And so why would so many in the world now live in a self-delusion that enslaves them again to their sin. That's sort of what Paul is getting at in the first chapter of Romans when he says that they exchange the truth for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. And we might add worship the redeemed rather than the redeemer. And that's the same sentiment in Jesus' words for us in our text, isn't it? He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, as soon as we hear the word if, we think of sort of that, those if-then statements. If you do this, then this will happen. As if Jesus says, if you remain in my word, then you will truly be my disciples. But remaining in his word doesn't make you his disciples. Rather, we should hear it this way. If it should happen that you remain in my word, that is evidence that you are truly my disciples. You see, the Jews who had believed in him 
in our, in our text. They wanted to be known as his disciples. They wanted to be known as his disciples. He says, those who are truly my disciples, they are those who do not exchange my word for a lie. On the other hand, one who exchanges the truth for a lie, well, that's a pretty good indication that that one is not truly Christ's disciple. Consider the implications. Jesus is speaking to those, including us, who have already heard and received the word of truth. You might say these are not words for folks on the street corner who have never before heard the gospel. These are words for the person in the pew. He says, if you should remain in my word and trust what I tell you, it is evidence that you are truly my disciple. As you claim to be. Sort of like when he says elsewhere, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But what of those who do not remain in his word purely and truly? What of those who had his word, but gave it up, who were in the pew, but exchanged the truth of God for a lie? This is the problem for a whole host of those who claim to be Jesus' disciples. What of those who grow indifferent? Or what, of those, or what of the teaching of those who once believed that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, but now teach that anyone who does good works can get to heaven? Is such a teaching that of a true disciple? Or what of those who rightly hold that Jesus, uh, rightly once held that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but then they teach that because he did, we can all sin freely and strive to fulfill every self-gratifying sinful lust? Is such a teaching that of a true disciple? Or what of those who once agreed with the Christian faith that Christ's sacrificial death atones for all men, but have exchanged that truth for the lie that Christ's death atones only for some, only for the elect? Is such a teaching that of a true disciple? No, in all these cases, those who were once disciples become enslaved again. Indifference makes souls complacent and enslaves them to their sin. The teaching of good works enslaves souls to believe that Christ is not needed, or at least not sufficient, but that they must strive to accumulate sufficient good works to save themselves. And they thus become slaves to good works. The teaching of antinomianism, that since Christ died for my sins, I can just go out and sin freely, that's not freeing at all. But enslaves souls to believe that heavenly bliss can be found in the self-gratification of the flesh. And they become slaves to the whims and desires of instant gratification and lose sight of the eternal gospel of the cross of Christ. The teaching of salvation only for the elect. That enslaves souls to wonder about whether or not they are included in the elect number that they strive to prove themselves the elect by their efforts. And they become slaves to a holiness of living that supposedly proves Christ died for them. Such slavery in all these cases. And slaves do not remain in the house forever. But the Son remains forever. And He calls us to remain with Him in the truth of His Word. For if his word speaks plainly for us the truth of our salvation, then the truth 
sets us free. Sets us free from slavery to good works, slavery to complacency, slavery to sinful gratification, slavery to uncertain elect status. The truth sets us free with a clear conscience toward the God who loves us for the sake of His Son. Sets us free to be people of God, not with uncertainty of always attempting to earn the status, but in certainty that He has baptismally clothed us in the status. Indeed, the Word of Christ sets us free in the great reality, the great history and ongoing truth of the Gospel. That Christ died for sinners. That He won the victory for sinners. That God put Him forward as a propitiation by His blood, and faith receives this good news and rejoices in our free salvation on account of it. And so then, if the Son, through the truth of His Word, sets you free, you will be free indeed, Jesus says. And recall that as we said a few moments ago about those if-then statements earlier in our text, so also it's true for this if statement. If doesn't mean if Christ sets you free. As if to suggest it might not happen. Rather, it should be read, if we should speak of the great reality that Christ sets you free. Such means you are really, truly, indeed free. Such is not a sham freedom, but the real deal. You are free before God, free from sin, free to have a clear conscience, free to have certainty in His promises, divine gifts, free forgiveness, free in the face of the power of death and the accusations of the devil. And that truth teaches us to see the reality, the real history and ongoing truth of this world rightly. For example, take a look at your bulletin cover. An image of Luther standing before Emperor Charles V, the great emperor of Rome, standing before, standing before him at the Diet of Worms. And ask yourself what you see. The deluded world sees a single monk bravely standing before but at the mercy of worldly authority, with little hope of being heard fairly or winning any great victory. But the Christian faith sees clearly, sees rightly, that Luther standing with the authority of Christ himself before a sadly misguided and lost soul. And Luther stands before him, even if with anxiety and trepidation, nevertheless stands with an eternal gospel to proclaim for the benefit of even the most powerful man of all mankind. Such is the plain truth of God's dealing with the world. He has an eternal gospel to proclaim. An eternal gospel that brings the word of truth into the world and lifts sinners' eyes to behold salvation in Christ crucified, receive it sprinkled over their heads, fed upon their lips, and placed into their hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Second sermon. Pastor Brent Kuhlman, Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska. Same text. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Here's his sermon entitled, Setting Sinners Free.
Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, these are incredible words in the text today. They're an off-the-charts Reformation sermon. Scandalous and shocking in many respects. It's probably what you never expected to hear today when you came to church. However, I would contend it is precisely what the church needs to hear over and over again. It is what you Lutherans that celebrate the Lutheran Reformation must hear and take to heart in your lives. You are to be repented and faithed. You are to be repented of your sin and faithed for salvation in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus preaches a sermon like that today. He is the Lord. And what he says in the sermon is a salvation at stake sermon in John 8. And it begins like this. If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is into discipling. He's all in with that. He wants disciples. He will have disciples. Disciples of Jesus do not abide in or hang on to their own words, but rather to Jesus' word. When your words are nothing and Christ's words are everything, then you know the truth. And that truth will set you free. So far, so good, aren't we? You can go along with that, can't you? The kicker, however, is when the word of Jesus that you are to, which word of Jesus it is that you're to abide in or to hang on to, to be a true disciple of Jesus. You see, that's when the rubber hits the road. This is when things really get dicey. Jesus will surprise you in the text today. You will be taken aback. You will be short of breath. And I guarantee you, you will swallow hard. You may even begin to sweat. Jesus categorically declares that when you remain in his word, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you, yeah, that's right, free. Really? Really? You see, with those words, Jesus categorically asserts that you are not free. That you are enslaved, imprisoned, incarcerated, in shackles, fetters and chains, that you need to be free. Now that really, I mean, geez, that really offends you, doesn't it? It hurts your sensibilities, your pride, your manhood, your womanhood. And so you go on the offensive. You get in Jesus' face, you wag your finger at him, and you inform him that you are a proud and patriotic American. You let Jesus know ever so firmly and emphatically that your fathers are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, and that you have never been in bondage to anyone. How dare you say, Jesus, that you will be setting us free? Well, this does seem to be a little outrageous from our Lord, doesn't it? I mean, this is beyond impolite. It's downright rude and despicable. I mean, it's just so far out there that Jesus would say such a thing. It sounds as if Jesus gets his talking points from the Trump campaign. Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he doubles down. Why? Because it's all about his word, not yours. Remember? 
So Jesus tells it like it is. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Now do you get it? St. Paul put it this way in the epistle today, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus will have you be his disciple. Jesus will have you abide or remain or hang on to this particular truth that you are a what? See, this is what offends you. That you're a what? That you're a sinner. That you were utterly enslaved to sin. That you were in total bondage to it. Truly, truly, I say to you. I mean, when Jesus says truly, truly, you know what that is in the original? It's amen, 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 amen. Truth, truth. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. That's the Lord's word, and it's the truth. Jesus has to tell you this truth. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because you, slaves to sin, are always in denial. You always are in 24-7, 365 spin mode perpetually justifying yourselves as well-intentioned, mostly good, freewheeling, honest, never-hurt-anyone kind of folks. You're self-centered, and you're curved in on yourselves. And so, when you are in denial, who don't you need? Yes, that's right. You don't need Jesus. And so, with these words in the text, Jesus unmasks you. He brings you low. He reduces you to nothing. He puts the justification of the self and you, the sinner, to death with this word. Truly, truly, I say to you, you sin, you're a slave to it. And so a Jesus disciple abides or remains or hangs onto that truth. And then a Jesus disciple says, Amen, that's true. I'm a sinner. I'm a slave to it. And the Jesus disciple then prays, I'm nothing, Jesus. You're everything. Please, save me. And that's precisely what you get with the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation. The epistle from Romans today put it this way. You sinners are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. Redemption that is only and totally in Jesus. That's his Good, Fl good Friday bloody death. And he did it for you. He shed his blood to atone for your sin. And so you are propitiated. That is to say, you are covered with our Lord's divine blood that is to be received by faith. Brothers and sisters, it is through the blood of Jesus that you are now emancipated, set free, busted out of the prison house of sin and death. No longer slaves, but now what? A son in the divine family mansion. Jesus says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus says that you are the son. The son who is given the inheritance. The inheritance of salvation. And that's when Jesus gives another categorical word of promise. It's what the Jesus disciple remains and abides in or hangs on to by faith. It's this promise. It was the last verse. So, if the Son, capital S, Son, sets you free, 
you will be free indeed. That is the ultimate truth. Yes, you are sinners, but Jesus died for you, sinners. Jesus is the righteousness of God as God's pure gift of salvation for you in his death. This then sets you free from trying to perpetually save yourselves or to justify yourself by what you do or by what you don't do. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to salvation, you don't pay any attention to yourself. Your undivided is on who? The Lord Jesus. When it comes to salvation, Jesus is the one who does the verbs. What he says, he does, and what he does, he says. It is finished, he cried. And it was. The salvation job has been accomplished. And in a few minutes, Jesus will promise you sinners the salvation that he won for you on the cross. He promises that he gives you his body and blood with the bread and wine for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. What he won for you on Good Friday, he delivers with his, with his word. The Lord's Supper then is our Lord's way of saying, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Happy being a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Third sermon, batting cleanup, Pastor Jeremy Rohde. He's going to be preaching on the epistle reading for Reformation Sunday, and that is Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 28, which reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means to be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde's sermon on this text entitled, Extra Nos. And even shape the history of our own country. What we often forget is that those 95 theses nailed to that church door were nailed there by a pastor. A pastor who, above all else, was concerned for the people in his own congregation, some of whom had recently bought indulgences, putting their trust in a piece of paper instead of Christ. The fire that kindled the Reformation was not the defiance of a young monk, but the love of a young pastor. Love for the people in his own congregation. Love that meant giving his people Christ and Christ alone 
no matter what it might cost him. The heart of the Lutheran Reformation always has been and always will be about Christ. Christ for sinners. Christ for you. Do not trust in what your money can buy you. Do not trust in a piece of paper, even if it is signed by the Pope. Do not trust in your resume of good works or what you think heaven owes you. Do not trust in your so-called decision for Jesus. Do not trust in your moral self-improvement or sanctification. Do not even trust in the genuineness of your own repentance. Only Christ, only Christ can save you. If it depends in any way on you or on your doing, then it is a work of the law. And by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. What this means is very simple. If your eyes are set on yourself, you will find only sin and damnation there. But if your eyes are set on Christ, in Him you will find only forgiveness and only salvation. A Lutheran pastor from Sweden, Bo Geertz, wrote a novel called The Hammer of God. And in it we're introduced to a Lutheran pastor named Savonius. The thing about Savonius is that he doesn't really understand the Reformation. And so he knows only to point Christians to themselves for assurance that they are truly saved. Listen in as Pastor Savonius visits a dying man named Johannes. Savonius moved a few steps nearer and heard his voice speak a timid greeting, God's peace be with you. A giant hand was lowered, and from the semi-darkness in the far corner, a tortured face appeared, the whites of the eyes glistening. The eyes were wide open with terror, The hair was matted by the sweat of anguish. The twisted mouth was like a black hole in which two yellow teeth were glimpsed. This is horror itself, thought Pastor Savonius, the anguish that ascends from the utter darkness of chaos. Without really knowing how, the pastor landed on a chair that must have been pushed toward him from behind. Summoning all his power of self-control, he grasped the struggling hand, which strangely enough allowed itself to be moved like a child's. Rough and scabrous, dead as a piece of wood, it lay between the pastor's soft hands. For a while he sat in silence, not knowing what he should say. Then words came to his lips he hardly knew from whence. I wish you God's peace, God's eternal peace and blessing. The sick man shook his head. Not for me. Not for me. Eternal damnation. 
punishment according to the measure of my sin, the judgment of wrath and the everlasting flames, that is for me. To me he will say, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. But God is good, said Savonius quietly. The sick man looked straight up at the ceiling. Yes, God is good, very good. It is just for that reason I am in such a bad way. Pastor, you do not know how good God has been to me. He has sought my soul and bidden me walk the way of life, but I have not done so. He has shown me heaven's purity, but I shall never win it. I sat in Revlunda church and heard the angels sing. Then I saw my mother in the women's pew, and I thought, Mother is aged, this winter she may die, then I shall inherit the farm. And my heart wept, for I saw that more than I loved mother, I loved the filthy dollars. Then the pastor came to the pulpit. Potbelly, I thought. You can play cards and fish for trout, but you cannot feed God's poor little lambs with the word. But I had not prayed for him. Was that love? I walked along the road and saw the rye in full bloom. Then I thought, rye as thick as this is never to be seen on the crofter's stony field. But the captain has taken all the good ground for himself. He is rich in this world, but he will burn in hell. Was that love, pastor? Johannes had suddenly turned his fever-reddened eyes toward the pastor and looked penetratingly at him. That is how it is with me, Pastor. Day after day, moment upon moment, it is sin added to sin, nothing but sin. But God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, were the words that came from the pastor's lips. Ah, but that he should turn from his way and live, said the sick man, completing the passage. That is why there is no hope for me, Pastor. For thirty years, God has given me the opportunity to turn and repent. Thirty years I have been on that way, but I shall never reach the goal. Have I turned from the evil way? No. I have lamented and called upon God, but the heart is just as evil. Falseness and darkness within pretense and hypocrisy on the surface. But confess your sins and God will forgive you. Savonius tried to give his voice the ring of authority. Confess, said Johannes, and his head fell back with infinite weariness. It was not terror that showed on his face now, but a dying despair that seemed almost unendurable. He started upward with lifeless eyes. For thirty years, as thou knowest, Lord, I have confessed my sins, and thou didst forgive everything. The salt I stole, the grouse I snared, adultery and profanity, all was forgiven. It was like the singing of larks that day in the church, 
And it was Thy voice, O Lord, that I heard when the pastor read the absolution. That day I knelt in prayer at the gates of Borsobo, and blessedness and peace lay like sunshine on the grass. Lord, all this Thou didst for me. I believed then that I was Thine, but the heart of stone remained. The uncircumcised, adulterous heart continued to be just as evil. I wept and confessed, and Thou didst forgive me afresh. I came with new confessions. Thy grace was great, Lord. Twenty times, fifty times I came, but I was still no better. Then the door of grace was shut. He who repents and believes will be received into the kingdom. But I did not repent. Savonius' brain worked desperately. The man was certainly out of his head. His hand was very hot. Still, one could sense a certain logic in his wanderings of mind. Suddenly, Savonius called to mind what the driver had said, that if only Johannes were instructed as to the evidences of his being in a state of grace, then the sick man would surely be able to understand that his soul was in no true danger. The driver was evidently right. It was clear that Johannes was unnecessarily troubled. The fragments of a human life that flitted by as he continued his fevered talk showed a piety and godly fear so deep and earnest that Savonius could hardly remember that he had ever witnessed anything like it. This man's soul was completely dominated by the quest for God. That was evident. Why then did he not understand that God was good? How could he be made to understand that he had nothing to fear? Savonius stood up. With an assertion of his priestly authority, he laid his narrow hand as heavily as he could on Johannes' shoulder and said, Johannes of Borsovo, I say to you that if anyone in this settlement will die in peace, it is you. The sick man looked up. A quivering gleam of hope shone in his eyes. How can that be, Pastor? You are better and more upright in soul than anyone I have ever met. Then the little gleam of light in Johannes' eyes died away. There was a piercing earnestness in his eyes as he looked up at the pastor. The judge will not judge the soul by other souls, pastor. The books will be opened, and the dead will be judged by what is written in the books. Every idle word that men speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. And my doom is already sealed. Savonius' arms hung limply. He was powerless against this chilling logic. The man was really right. Each man would indeed be judged according to his works. He had himself preached on that text at the communion service on Quincagesima. But he had certainly experienced no such anguish of soul. Not knowing what to say, the pastor sat down. Dear Christians, as you can see, the poor pastor could not do anything else but point the man 
back to Himself to find assurance of His salvation buried deep within His soul. Pastor Savonius, though he was a Lutheran pastor, did not understand the Lutheran Reformation. In the story, he ends up walking outside the house of the dying man, simply sitting there, not knowing what to do, until thankfully, someone who did understand the Reformation came along. Is Johannes already dead, Pastor? Savonius looked up, startled. This was an altogether new voice, a woman's deep, warm, alto voice. The stranger must have come from down the road. She wore a handkerchief over her black hair, which was combed straight back. The face was middle-aged, wise, with soft and gentle lines under the tan. Savonius's face must have betrayed his bewilderment, since the woman went on to explain who she was. I am Katrina Philip from Hersmolen. They have asked me to come because the situation is so critical. We were once neighbors, but now I suppose he has already gone to his rest. There was a questioning anxiety in her voice and even more in her childlike eyes. Savonius realized that she had innocently construed, construed his strange conduct as the result of his own sadness over Johannes' death. If only she could continue to think that. Johannes still lives, Savonius said, but he is in very sad straits indeed. The woman nodded silently and went into the house. The pastor sat still a moment longer, undecided as to his course. Finally, he rose and followed her. If I am present, they will at least not speak ill of me, he thought. Just inside the door, he slumped down on a chair. The woman was already at the bedside. Peter's wife bent down and shouted in the sick man's ear, Johannes, wake up! Katrina is here! It's Katrina! Do you hear? The sick man was in his right mind again. Katrina, it was good of you to come. You are kind, Katrina. God will reward you. And me? He will punish. So will he be exalted and declared righteous in all his judgments. But it will go badly for me, Katrina. Why is it not as it used to be? Do you remember when we sang the old songs from the songs of Moses and the Lamb? Then my heart was glad in the Lord. But it never became clean. Katrina, I am a sinner, a great sinner. Yes, that you are, Johannes. But Jesus is a still greater Savior. The sick man breathed heavily before answering. He seemed to be going over something in his mind. Yes, he is a great Savior for those who let themselves be saved. But my heart is not clean. My mind is evil. I do not have the new spirit. Katrina answered, They that are well need no physician, but they that are sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Yes, Katrina, but it reads, To repentance. It is repentance that I lack. You do not lack repentance, Johannes, but faith. 
You have walked the way of repentance for 30 years and still not attained to it, said Johannes. Johannes, said the woman almost sternly, answer me this question. Do you really want your heart to be clean? Yes, Katrina. God knows that I want that. Then your repentance is also as true as it can be in a corrupt child of Adam in this world. Your danger is not that you lack repentance, but that you have been drifting away from faith. What then shall I believe, Katrina? You must believe this living word of God, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Up to this day, Johannes, you have believed in works, and you have been looking at your own heart. You saw only sin and wretchedness there, because God anointed your eyes with the salve of the Spirit, so that you might see the truth. Do you have sin in your heart, Johannes? Yes, answered the sick man timidly. Much sin, altogether too much. Just that should make clear to you that God has not forsaken you, said the woman firmly. Only he can see his sin who has the Holy Spirit. Do you mean to say, Katrina, that it could be a work of God that my heart is so unclean? Not that your heart is unclean, Johannes. That is the work of sin. But that you now see it. That is the work of God. But why then have I not received a clean heart? Asked Johannes. So that you might learn to love Jesus. Said the woman. What do you mean, Katrina? I mean, Johannes, that if you had received a clean heart and for that reason had been able to earn salvation, to what end would you then need a Savior? If the law could save a single one of us, Jesus would surely not have needed to die on the cross because the law worketh wrath and God stops every mouth by His holy commandments that all the world may become guilty before God. The sick man had become perfectly still. His sister fanned the flies from his face. Except for that, no one moved. Have you anything more to say, Katrina? Yes, one more thing, Johannes. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Do you mean... Do you really mean that He takes away also the sin that dwells in my unclean heart? Yes. He atoned for all that sin when He died in your place. But I still have it with me, don't I? Yes. As surely as Paul also still had it with him. Have you never read what Paul says? I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Yes, whispered Johannes, that's how it is. Katrina said, 
That is the way it has always been for Christians, us and all others. With his stripes, we are healed. He is the propitiation for our sins and also for the sins of the whole world. The sick man lay breathlessly quiet. Then he whispered, One more word, Katrina. A sure word, and I will believe it. The woman got up quietly, took the Bible that lay on the table, and sat down again. Opening the Bible, she read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. I believe, said Johannes. Dear Christian, if you, like Johannes, Look inside yourself and see nothing but sin and deceit. What little good you've done tainted with evil. Your repentance, even your repentance, imperfect, half-hearted, hypocritical. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Not the sin but that He has given you eyes to see yourself as you truly are. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, turn your eyes from yourself to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See Him hanging on the cross. Your sins are there too. See all your sins on Jesus laid. See the blood that drips from His crown of thorns. See the blood flowing from His scourged flesh. See the blood draining from His pierced hands and feet and side. Behold the blood of God poured out for you, for the forgiveness of all your sins. It is finished. Nothing depends upon you. Everything depends upon Him, and He has done it. This is what the Reformation is all about. You are forgiven. Yes, you and nothing can change that. The Son has set you free, and you are free indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. What would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>